Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. This episode is called Ask Me No Questions and I'll Tell You No Lies. Kidding, it's actually called Goodbye and Thanks for All the Memes. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and today I am joined by the utterly amazing and somewhat youthful Chris Stevens. Now, before we go on, I do need to remind you that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves, and we aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We may be wrong, but we're definitely first. How's it going there, Chris? Yeah, it's going good. It's been a nice, quiet weekend for once. I haven't had too many of them this year. Yes, well, it might be quiet, but we have an awful lot to get to on the show, so why don't we introduce our other panelists joining us also today and just back from talking to all sorts of famous formula one type people is jake sanson hello mate good to see you again oh it's great to see you too and it's even better to see you without your hat i must say nice choice i was choice wondering there. when you were going to pick up on that yes i couldn't fit it in my suitcase that is the official excuse i that well whatever whatever makes you happy <laughs> is fine with us <laughs> And I have to admit, there is a special panelist today running the chat room and on break from uh, serious familial duties is none other than Spanners Ready. How's it going, Spanners? Oh, don't mind me. I'm just here minding the chat room. Thanks for managing all the production and stuff, guys. It let me get on with other projects. But seeing as you guys were all recording, it was very hard to resist jumping in the shed and getting involved. Now, I, I know you were supposed to be spending time with your family and somehow you've managed to wangle a pass here. But admit it, you're really here because the thought of the three of us on a show without you was just vaguely terrifying. I trust you completely. 
Now get on with it like we discussed, or there'll be consequences. All right, then. Well, in order to get on with it, we're going to need to get into our time machine and travel to the past because the last weekend's race was so eventful, so full of excitement and fun that we left out all of the news. Uh, So, Chris, tell us, tell us, because there was news uh, that is just manna to my particular heart. There was lots of tire talk going into the race weekend. What is going on there? Yeah, I know we love to talk about tires on Miss Apex, don't we? Um, a lot of news about the new tire tender, uh, which of course is up for grabs from 2020 to 2023. And uh, Michelin, we know, were one of the uh, people to put their, their name onto that list, but they've now withdrawn it uh, for several reasons. Um, there are new regulations coming in for 2021, and one of those is to introduce uh, a bigger wheel rim, an 18-inch wheel rim, up from the 13 we have now. But that would mean making a one-off 13-inch wheel rim for 2020, only to do something completely different for the next three years. So that really put them off, the idea of doing Formula 1 again. Plus, the whole idea of high-degradation tyres, which Formula 1 is still going to push, is completely against Michelin's MO. They will not produce anything other than a faultless tyre. Jake? Um, I'm not particularly excited by this story exactly because, you know, Michelin is very clearly not looking to get too heavily involved in Formula One anyway. I know they put their name into the tender, but when you look at the projects they've currently got on, I mean, they're obviously heavily involved with MotoGP. They're heavily involved with the World Endurance Championship. They've got a few other projects around the world. You know, why would you give a company too much to do if it's not particularly interested in getting involved? And at this point in Formula One, creating a tyre war for the point of having a tyre war, it just doesn't seem to have a decent percentage of risk in it. I I don't see why there should be a tyre war just for the sake of. I think they need to fix other problems first. I don't think they're looking at a tyre war, but they they did say that they could recreate the drama of a tyre war if they were to, to come into the sport again. Uh, what they were sort of looking at is what they do with MotoGP, which is making all of the compounds uh, available. They bring three to each race weekend and everyone can do whatever they want. You know, there's no rules that you have to start on the same compound you qualified on, etc. I don't think that sort of uh, rule would work in Formula One, though, uh, because of the, the multiple stops that you have to do. F1 races are a lot longer. Uh, so I don't quite think that what Michelin were proposing there would work in Formula One. I personally like the fact that Michelin sticks to what it's good at, though. I mean, the, the fact that they're in Formula E, for example, is amazing. And it's the easiest tyre gig in the whole world because they don't actually... Where, where was the last time you saw a Formula E wear out its tyres? You know, it's easy for Michelin because they can just put a very decent speck of tyres on the, on the car and they know they're never going to get that worn because of, you know, the adhesion and the grip and the lack of it. But with Formula One, I don't know, you know, the amount of projects they've already got on the go... I just think they'd be pushing themselves too far. I mean, the, the last time Michelin were involved in Formula One, it was great because there was another tyre company to go up against. I mean, you know, if you try to do much too quickly as any company, even as big as Michelin, I think it's actually going to do, you know, more harm than good. That's my own personal opinion. I think it might be an issue of perception, Matt, because actually the way the Pirelli tyre things have worked out has, has been fine. The fact is, though, that there's eight different types of compound. If they just never told us which I believe they're doing next year, where on the range they are and just said, you know, soft, medium, hard. And then 
they just promoted it a bit more what they're chi- what they're trying to achieve. So for Pirelli, it's just a constant weekly kicking whenever Lewis Hamilton sits there and says, oh, these tyres are gone, man. They're gone. It sounds so negative. He never comes on the radio in the first couple of laps and says, oh, man, these tyres are sticky. These are fantastic race tyres. These are amazing. Uh, and then Kimi Raikkonen last week, very popular. All we heard was Kimi Raikkonen lost because the Pirelli tyre let him down. And that's that's not good optics. So if they just change the perception of these tyres, we could just go about our business better. It's a good point. I think it's one of the things that Paul Hembry's always, always sounded frustrated with is that, you know, these teams need to work a little bit more with us. If they were willing to communicate with us a bit more, we could probably get better data. We've heard him several times saying, well, why is the sport having a go at us? We are providing what the sport has asked us to provide. I don't think there's many companies out there who want to take that kind of kicking. Right. But if you looked at a picture of, say, Lewis Hamilton's tires next to Kimi Raikkonen's tires, you're not going to assume the problem automatically is Pirelli. I think the issue is for people who follow the sport technically, we'd like to know what compounds are being brought because they all have different set working ranges and stuff like that. But I think for your average fan, knowing that a soft tire doesn't last as long but goes faster and a hard tire goes longer, uh, but won't be quite as fast really is the limit of knowledge that they're happy with. And so it just kind of depends on who you are. But what I'm curious about is that when Pirelli came to the sport in 2014, they actually proposed moving to an 18 inch tire. Now, obviously that means they have some experience with it. Um, Hankook, we don't know a lot about them unless you follow Formula 3 or DTM. What do we think of them as a serious contender? And why don't we hear from the chat room before you guys answer that? Yeah, just a, a few comments from the chat room. Firstly, can we appreciate how good I'm being? Because it's your show. I'm not complaining about all the tire talk. Uh, but Muna119 says Formula E is too slow to wear out a tire. And uh, Low Stealth, put on the hardest tire to have no stops. Don't stop. Sounds exciting. Oh, it's sarcastic. That makes more sense now. And Christopher Fonseca, Rob Graham, I'd hate to lose the spectacle of a 2.2 second pit stop. Uh, and uh, Rob Graham wants tie wars and refueling, please. Jake? You're on mute. Oh, look at Jake being so good. He muted himself. Sorry to uh, cut back in there. Sorry, apologies. The Hankook question, to answer that, they've been doing an awful lot of work with various different forms of motorsport out in Japan, uh, particularly with GTs, which they've been working with Super GT in the past, which is closer to DTM regs. So in actual fact, there is a little bit of a correlation between the two. They, They have obviously been doing an awful lot of technical work. So I think if there is a particular company that's going to have a crack at Formula One, Although many people from the Formula One fraternity won't have heard of Hankook as a tyre company, I think they would be capable of doing a good enough job to provide a decent rubber and actually uh, could give us a little bit more clarity potentially than some people have suggested Pirelli are not very good at. I would agree with that. I think if Hankook came in, they would do a pretty good job of it. There's no reason to say that they couldn't. Uh, Although Pirelli has really done nothing wrong, all they've ever done is do what has been asked of them by the sport. And um, just on that 18-inch you know, thing that he proposed, I mean, I wondered, did they really say they wanted it or they just do it if that is what was asked of them? Because when Michelin came in originally with the idea a few years ago, they said, well, if that's what you want, we'll do it as well and showcased it on a GP2 car, if I remember uh, rightly. So, yeah, Pirelli has really done nothing wrong and there's no reason why they shouldn't 
get the tire tender again, then again, Hancock coming in could spice things up. Well, the article I read said they proposed it and continue to do some testing on it. But what, what caught my uh, eye was the fact that Hankook also does the um, F3, and they already produce a 13-inch tire. So then it suddenly makes sense to me why they would be a more serious contender to Pirelli. But what's odd about it, I guess, is that the regulations themselves have almost conspired to drive out what I believe to be uh, Jean Todd's favorite manufacturer, Michelin. And this is a larger issue, perhaps, for the sport in general. No, I, I don't think that's a, a, an issue. Formula One should be pushing this high tire deg thing because it makes races more interesting. If Michelin don't like that, there are other people who are willing to fill in the slot for them. And it's not like Michelin haven't got other things that they can be doing. It's interesting because I was looking at the chat room and there was a bit of a conversation about this when somebody said, aren't they the official supplier of DTM as well? I think it was uh, LGH Jerkman who said that. And then Low Stealth wrote, people don't know that, though. So F1 might be good for them. That's almost suggesting that Hankook isn't a big enough company to want the credit. But I don't think that's a particularly fair thing to say. What you have to remember is that the fact that they're the DTM official supplier actually works commercially stupendously for them. Because what you're forgetting is how big a sport DTM actually is in Europe. It's almost as big as Formula One to the Europeans. They are hardcore fanatics about their motorsport. They really dig it. I mean, you get the crowds for DTM meetings. They're the same size as Formula One. So I don't think exposure is really an issue. I think it's whether it's a technical challenge for Hankook. And don't forget, when you go down to your, your garage to get tyres, you don't say, oh, I'd rather have a Hankook or a Pirelli. You go, how much? How much is the cheapest one? All right, then the next cheapest one. So it really is down to what the garages supply, and they're far more likely to be influenced by the motorsport industry. I mean, you're not being the F1 tyre supplier is just a big advert in and of itself as well, really. It's all sponsorship. And let's not forget, Hankook is indeed, I think, either the sixth or seventh largest tyre company in the world. They do work in F3. They have experience at both sizes with those tires. And I haven't, I Googled uh, F3 tire complaints and I could find none from anybody. Maybe that's just because nobody cares. But then again, maybe it's because they're actually doing a pretty good job. But I have to admit, Spanners, I, I do have uh, a, a bit of sympathy now because even I am getting a little bit tired of this particular tire talk. So let's say huh. we move on since we're talking about time, and let's talk about the 2019 calendar, which also, I believe, was confirmed in the not-too-distant past there, Mr. Stevens. So the 2019 calendar is... There, there aren't huge changes to it, to be honest, um, but we have got some good news um, in it. There is uh, another... you know, German Grand Prix is back for one year. They've got uh, an extension on that. A three-year deal for the Japanese Grand Prix, which is nice, so that's extended through to 2021. Uh, and the the reason that we've got these is because Mercedes and Honda, respectively, are going to be the title sponsor for their home races. And Mercedes have said in the past, we're not really interested in being a title sponsor for anything, uh, let alone at the German Grand Prix. Uh, but a few weeks ago, I think it was just before the German Grand Prix, uh, Liberty Media sat down with uh, Mercedes, with Toto Wolff as well, and said, this is our proposed idea. It, it's much more likely to keep the German Grand Prix on the calendar long term. And we saw that a huge turnout it was a massive success this year, much more compared to the previous German Grand Prix we had back in 2016, where half the stands were empty. 
So this is a, a nice way of securing the, cal- uh, G- the German Grand Prix on the calendar for a little bit longer. The other thing as well is that we're going to have no triple header this year, which is nice for the, for the teams and the people involved in the sport, to be honest, because being away uh, from home and your families for so long and just constantly being traveling is not really good for them. And it ups the expenses for the teams because what they ended up doing was having one team, like an A team and a B team that they'd alternate between races. Well, I don't know about you, Spanners. Forget traveling to the races. Just covering them three weeks in a row was tough, wasn't it? Yeah, but all of that pales in comparison to just being a fan and going, yes, there's another race and another race and another race. Woohoo! The biggest issue, though, let's be fair, the biggest issue, though, is on the teams because there's already been, you know, an addition to the calendar in the three weeks. They're not allowed to actually go into the factory and do any work because, you know, the schedule is already tiresome enough as it is. And that's where the difficulty comes in. I mean, we look at it from a fan's perspective and go more races. Brilliant. But when the calendar increased, I don't necessarily think the wages of the mechanics necessarily shot up by the same increment for the year because of the more work they had to do. Now, if that's the case, then I will stand corrected. But the difficulty here is actually the schedule for the teams. I mean, a lot of these kind of the problem that the teams are having with the calendars is the workload. It's got nothing to do with the amount of races that drivers are doing. The drivers actually would quite like to do more races because they're racing drivers. The mechanics and the teams and the logistics in the factories, that's where the problem is with the massive calendar. And going into December, well, that actually cuts into the year a little bit more for the teams. I mean, I don't mean to be a killjoy in this argument. I see what you're saying. But for the mechanics and the people who work in the team, that is a really, really difficult situation for them to be in when there's more weeks added to the calendar or more races added to the calendar. Sure, but this isn't a static landscape. There used to be a lot less races. And if Formula One in the future becomes something that's a lot more labor intensive, then yes, there is a kind of jarring change period, but it becomes a choice of that kind of lifestyle. So even people going into Formula One now have to accept this massive change of lifestyle. And I'm imagining industry-wide, they probably accept slightly lower wages compared to, say, their friends from uni who went off to do defence. So there are lifestyle choices to be made for the benefit of Formula One. We can't forever stop progress for the lives of the teams and the mechanics in the paddock. Uh, And I've just realised now that that is going to prejudice us massively to anyone who's listening from the paddock so i withdraw edit all this out <laughs> i mean the, the way i look at it is in comparison to the calendar for say nascar now i know i'm talking about nascar on an f1 podcast bear with me their season starts early february and it finishes late november so you know that's 10 straight months and most of the time you know there, there are 36 races in the calendar year so if you think that's 10 months and 36 races to fit into 10 months. Now, that's insane. That's most of the time there is a race every week. I think there's only one uh, gap of two weeks in between, you know, races over the course of the year. Now, that is strenuous. But again, that's only across America. Now, I know America's vast, but it's only across one country. Whereas you're talking about uh, putting more races into a calendar, 21 races into a calendar is massive when you're going around the world. I mean, some of these back-to-back races obviously are close in terms of the same continent, but you're talking about going from Australia to Bahrain to Europe, and then there's a a jump across to Canada in the middle of the season. It's ridiculous for the logistics. If it was more organised based on where the races actually are through the course of the year, then I think it would be a little bit easier for the teams to cope with. Yeah, but like someone in the chat room there, Rob Standens, just said, I don't get mechanic 
fatigue because I only get 28 days holiday a year. It will just mean F1 becoming a sport that gets more money in and presumably people's wages and bonuses will increase or it's all about man hours. So you just need more manpower, but more races will generate more manpower. So you don't necessarily have to just flog the same people more and more. So, so where do you stand on teams creating two separate teams and spending more money on more mechanics that they can divvy up between those yeah. back-to-back races? Sure. I mean, that's what happened in the Premiership. We used to have like 15-man squads. Now they have like full squad rotation, A teams, B teams. They have guys that come in and only play in certain competitions. But in an era where we're desperately trying to cut down costs... But you're generating more revenue, aren't you? If you're doing more races, you're generating more revenue. Therefore, Not the necessarily. The teams aren't. If you're the team, you say, and then you get asked, do you want to do five extra races? You say, yes, for five extra races, more money, please. And if they say, no, 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 for the same money, you go, no, that's, that's not how business works. Goodbye. It's a great but- idea, what you're suggesting there. It's a great idea. But you're talking about a sport where currently prize money is given to Ferrari based on the fact that they've been racing in Formula One since 1950. Now, just because more money would be brought into the sport, that doesn't necessarily mean the teams are going to get the fair percentage of that revenue. So that's the difficulty. And that's a duty for Liberty Media, if that were to be the case, to make sure that the teams are treated fairly. And that's why we get so many of these very, very strange moments from race to race where all of a sudden Liberty Media having a meeting to discuss with the teams and there's a bit of a fallout. These are the things they're discussing. They're discussing, you know, if we're actually going to be getting a share of this increased revenue, it needs to be fair. It needs to be put back into our staff, our resources and our ability to travel to these races. And that's where we get these arguments with Concord agreements, because obviously the teams are trying to make sure that everything is fair. Uh, Matt, the chat room's just suggesting that a lot of the mechanics will be delighted to get away from the misses for a few more weeks. Oh, dear. No, m- my thought is, really, how much do these mechanics get paid? How, how, much of, how much of a percentage of the whole team's spend are the mechanic's salary versus, say, the driver's salary or the team principal's salary? Or, I mean, I realize at a certain point your expenses go up, but the question is, will having more races make the pie big enough for the teams to be able to afford the additional spend? And that's something none of us can answer uh, currently. And it's an issue for Liberty, I think, as Jake said, going forward, because um, the fundamental division of the money right now is is tilted a little too far in one direction. Chris? I, I would put a lot of my chips on the answer to that question being no. Having three extra races that you're going to cram into a really, really, really short space of time as well is not going to suddenly bring in an awful lot more money that's going to cover all of that extra cost in in an ideal world the calendar would be 19 races long i think that is a an appropriate uh, amount and let's be honest who is looking at the current calendar and thinking all of those tracks are brilliant i cannot wait to see every single grand prix now, you were talking there earlier, actually, Spanners, I've been thinking about this. You were talking about the fact that, you know, more races on the calendar is a good thing because back in the day, there weren't so many Formula One races in a season. And you're absolutely right. There weren't. But what there was over the course of a season, you'd say like have 12 or 13 world championship rounds. But then there would be other races that Formula One ran over the course of the year that were non-championship. Now, if there were perhaps, say, 16 races in the world championship that were 
a world championship event and the drivers that were contracted to that particular event for that particular purpose, that would be one thing. And if you wanted more races in the calendar that were exhibitional, let's say that you needed to participate in those races as well, but it was an opportunity for you to put your reserve drivers in, say, for example, and maybe you could earn constructors points rather than have a driver's championship. And then it could be a non-championship invitational race to promote Formula One in these different countries that they want to go to. Now, I don't necessarily have a problem with that because back in the day, you used to get the same crowds to the World Championship events that you used to get to the International Race of Champions at Brands Hatch, the Gold Cup at Alton Park, uh, a couple of races out in Europe as well. They used to do racing in Africa uh, in non-championship events. So I think it's definitely doable if that could be something Liberty Media could re-explore all right i'm going to give the last word to chris and then i'm going to ask you to go ahead and tell us because there's one more interesting change to the calendar that i think we ought to cover before we move on Uh, yeah just in response to jake's idea really and the reason we don't have those anymore is purely because of costs teams don't want to be spending money on a race that they are not going to get any points or reward for in all honesty if you're going to go and have a race anywhere you may as well make it a championship round and make it worthwhile if we had invitational events today there'd be five teams that showed up uh, so it's yeah while it's a really great idea it just isn't going to work in today's world so matt you mentioned the other thing that we do need to talk about and um it's a small change but it's uh, mexico now comes before the u.s grand prix basically because they were complaining that they were losing ticket sales because the U.S. and the Mexican Grand Prix are quite close to each other. They're only one week apart. So everybody bought tickets to the U.S. Grand Prix and nobody bothered going to the Mexico uh, Grand Prix. But now those two have been swapped around. I'm wondering if that might be down to the fact that the U.S. Grand Prix is just a lot, lot better than the Mexican Grand Prix. Call me crazy, but a track that provides great racing uh, compared to a track which has been somewhat shoehorned into a stadium, Jake. I think that might be part of the reason as well. Well, yes, it was shoehorned into a stadium. But are you forgetting last year's fantastic race when Max Verstappen took a victory and so much happened around it? I mean, that was one of the best races of last year. So you can't use the argument that an American Grand Prix is a better race because stuff actually happens when it does at Mexico. In fact, all the boring circuits, all the boring circuits, things happen. You just have to wait a while. I mean, we haven't had an interesting Spanish Grand Prix at Barcelona since, oh, Rosberg and Hamilton took each other off before then. Yeah, it was about 15 years before that. It, it, it's just, it's Formula One. It happens. To be clear, I didn't make the argument that US is better because more stuff happens. I said it's better racing and a better track. Uh, okay. I I really don't like the circuit of the Americas. I, I just Really? I know it's an unpopular opinion, but I just do not like how fake the whole thing is it's like they've just well, what, do you, what do you mean fake what because they just looked at maggots and beckett's and like we'll just do that with a piece of tracing paper and tilka cannot give up on turn eight of istanbul and the miles and miles and miles of runoff that they have at that circuit as well is i and the the infield sec i just don't like it there's not a single corner on that track that i look at and think yeah that's really interesting oh unlike maggots and beckett's which were organically plucked from a tree in the Garden of Eden, all racing <laughs> tracks are artificial. It's just there's been a modern trend towards these kind of tracks. And why not take the best of the tracks we've seen in the past and learn those lessons, abandon some of the rubbish things and actually make corners that work for modern F1 cars? 
I'm with Spanners on this one. I mean, you're talking about maggots and Beckett's being, you know, artificial and fake. Well, maggots and Beckett's were in their current form uh, created in 1991 because the previous Silverstone was too dangerous. So they came up with maggots and Beckett's as a, a way cooler set. The thing is, I think people take these things into context. They look at these things with rose-tinted glasses, which is much better in the olden days. But if you actually look at what Formula One is now compared to what it is 20 years ago, you know, there's still massive gaps between the leading teams and the back teams. There was 20 years ago. It's just starkly more in contrast because of the massive worldwide coverage we get. I actually sat on F1.com's TV service the other day and sat and watched the 1992 British Grand Prix, I think it was. I hadn't watched it since I was six. And I watched it back and went, this is boring as hell. It was one of the most dismal, boring races I've ever seen. But everybody looks back at those great races from that era and goes, oh, F1 was much better in those days. No, it wasn't. It was different. We are moving and evolving. That's what is actually happening. You've got to evolve with that. And if you take a new circuit and put the best bits of Formula One in it, what's the problem? To the best of my recollection, this isn't just a Tilkadrome at the Circuit of the Americas. It was Havo Talman's original idea that Tilka developed based on the property. Well, what does the chat room think about this, Spanners? Uh, Christopher Fonseca. No, sorry. EMH2212 says, race control, Chris Stevens disqualified for possession of a country opinion on a live podcast. One week time penalty and must run around Kota for five laps. Um, Sasyutmat Mundal says, most old races even watched on YouTube are boring, Chris. You just hate the future. You hate progress. Uh, and there was one here from Moona as well somewhere that says, turn one alone at Circuit of the Americas is one of the best corners. Agree. I refute the idea that I don't like modern things. I'm one of the patriots of Formula E, for heaven's sake. So that can't be a true argument. But it, it's, it's, it's no, there's nothing about it that i just like you know it's not it's not the fact that it's new or the, the fact that it's anything about too much of it i just don't enjoy watching racing on it well how could you not love turn one but i'll tell you you know what's really got me excited and all of you are going to hate this except for maybe jake IndyCar is coming to Circuit of the americas so yes we will have some direct comparisons unless they pave a new part and make a different track for it, which might happen, but I really hope it doesn't. This is going to be so much fun for us to argue about in about a year's time. I am elated that IndyCar is going to Kota for exactly the reason you mentioned, but I do have a feeling that it's just going to give the F1 guys ammunition to basically look at IndyCar as a place for failed Formula One drivers, that old adage. It's not fair, but I do think there's going to be some evidence that will crop up that will kind of try to prove their theory. But I am very, very thrilled that there's going to be a, a racetrack that will have both F1 and IndyCar on the calendar because it proves the worth of both championships by both visiting the same location. Yep. And here's my prediction. A year from now, we will say that F1 is faster, but IndyCar is still more exciting for wheel-to-wheel -wheel action. Anyway, that's that. What say we talk about something different? Now, this is an idea that also came up, I believe, just after the race weekend. But the idea of F1 servant teams. Now, for anyone who's paying attention or not paying attention, basically, this is taking the Haas model to yet even another step where the manufacturer, almost like the old, uh, I guess, Toro Rosso Red Bull relationship, where really 
the the younger team is just flat out run by the manufacturer team as is basically a satellite, but they have much more input control and information flow both directions. So, uh, Chris, tell us what's going on with that. What's the reception to this been? The FIA is extremely worried about it. That is the the first thing. The idea of servant teams is very different to the idea of satellite and customer teams where, say, you buy a year-old Mercedes and that's your car for the year. That works in a lot of different series. That's a great model. But what this is is basically a, a loophole for the incoming budget cuts and cost caps. So the the idea is that Mercedes will just get Force India to spend a bunch of money on their behalf and reap all the rewards from it effectively. And the worst case scenario is that you just get a, a band of, of the different teams of uh, Mercedes operating Force India and Williams, Ferrari operating Haas and Sauber, Red Bull and Toro Rosso have a very close relationship. And then teams like Renault and McLaren just get left out in the cold because they don't have a, a junior team as it were often you know that bringing it in to you know a complete end of the idea of an of, a, of an independent or a customer team you know teams like uh, williams the last true independent team on the grid maybe mclaren as as well the idea of that is just gone and you brought up the, the sort of Haas model. And in the beginning, you know, they weren't limited on, say, wind tunnel testing time. Uh, and there was the, the fear that Ferrari were going to use that to their advantage. There was never actually any evidence that they did do that. But that loophole got closed off. Uh, and there is now a limit to what you can share between teams and who you can trade between teams as well. But the FIA is very worried about uh, this idea. And they're, they're really looking at how to, to close off that loophole. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we do have some evidence from none other than Matthew Carter that that is more or less exactly what was done by Haas before they officially joined, which was not against the rules at the time. Everybody agrees. But Spanners, tell me, I mean, is there a ray of sunshine in this idea or is it equally awfully as bad as Stevens has described it? He's just such a pessimistic just Mona. It's, he's of his generation. That's the problem. Nothing's good enough for them. Uh, there is a bright spark to this, which is that I love the team element of Formula One. I've loved the fact that Mercedes have started using tactics, and I love the indignant rage that Ferrari have had the gall to go, I can't believe they're using their number two driver to help Lewis Hamilton. But I love that team element. And to see that extended back into a junior team, I've always found it frustrating that Toro Rosso can't close the gap up to Red Bull. Like, surely they all go to the same pub. They go to the same Christmas party. How does more of that information not get to Toro Rosso? That's absolutely beyond me. I want to see that shared because I want to see Toro Rosso with its drivers up the grid. I want to see Haas and Roman Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen right up close to the top six being involved. And if that means that Esteban Ocon is going to be asked to get out of the way of Lewis Hamilton in Monaco and a few more things like that, that is worth the price of a squashed up grid. Do you remember that fascinating Grand Prix in 2008 when Vettel in the Toro Rosso actually got the first win for a Red Bull team before the Red Bull senior team did? And there was that sort of weird, awkward moment in the paddock for a moment, like, oh, Red Bull have like spent hundreds of millions of quid on their F1 team and the junior team actually got a win first. It's, a, it's one of those weird things. I, I personally, it, it's funny, this sort of servant team debate, 
because you could argue to a certain extent that, you know, the way Force India currently operates, people have argued they're a Mercedes junior team already. Sauber, we obviously know the, the extent of their arrangement with Ferrari and Haas is obviously well publicized in Toro Rosso, a junior Red Bull team. I personally think if we're going to have servant teams, then they should not be allowed to compete for the Constructors' Championship. They shouldn't be allowed and be eligible for Constructors' points. Because if you're basically saying that there's a servant team to Mercedes, well, Mercedes is the manufacturer. They are the constructor going for the championship. If you're going to make a junior team that basically uses old cars, well, they're not building their own car. So that team should not be eligible for Constructors' Championship points. And... I kind of the difficulty is I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to put more cars on the grid. They're trying to give more drivers an opportunity to move forward. But what you're basically doing is you're sullying the efforts of the people who are actually going to the trouble of building and developing their own cars. The Williamses, the McLarens, the Force Indias to a certain extent, because they are still building and designing their own car. So I don't really see how this debate sort of makes any. You know, there doesn't seem to be any particular authority to this argument i think if you're going to just make loads of junior teams well why don't you just turn formula two into a formula one junior team outfit you know that's kind of where they should be anyway if you made formula two the junior wing of these senior teams so the mercedes junior team into formula two the ferrari junior team into formula two i mean they used to do that with formula 3000 in the late 90s mclaren had their own junior team then which was called west junior uh, which is their sponsor so you know that seems to be the better way of going about it. The Formula 3000 model, it was quite obvious because they even painted their cars in the same colour scheme as the Formula 1 teams. So you knew that was the junior wing. I don't know. I, I, I don't really see the point of a servant Formula 1 team because that kind of it ruins the purpose. And it kind of I'm trying to think of the right word to use this without you without swearing, because this is a family friendly podcast. It sullies and ridicules the purpose of Formula One. The whole point is you go, you set up a team, you build your own car, you race it. If you've got server teams, it completely goes against the whole concept and ethos of the sport. Okay. I'm going to throw this out there um, just as a counterpoint. Because they are racing for Mercedes, Mercedes would be very interested in, let's say, a, a Force India-like servant team getting on the podium ahead of Ferrari, ahead of Red Bull, ahead of their teams. And that necessarily means that the gap from those teams to the top three manufacturers now, who we will call currently Red Bull, Ferrari, and and Mercedes, and we might be adding Renault to that depending upon their spend. So if I'm going to have a junior team and I, and I want to win the Constructors' Championship, I'm going to want my junior team competitive with the senior teams that I'm racing against. And isn't that necessarily then going to bring down the gap and reduce, bring the midfield up to the point where it will get podiums, where it can steal podiums? Chris, I'm going to throw it to you for a response. No, it, if this is what ends up happening, it does not squash the field together at all. If anything, it brings it back apart again. The whole point of the cost cap is to bring the teams closer together. But as soon as manufacturers just start getting other teams to spend money on their behalf, Without them picking up any of the benefit, it just brings the manufacturers further apart from the midfield again. The manufacturers are going to be the ones who benefit from that spending, not, not the junior teams. So Spanner's laid out a lovely vision of Formula One there. That is my absolute dream to have it. But unfortunately, that is not the reality if the idea of servant teams comes through. The idea of like satellite and customer teams, that yeah. would be the vision. But so long as they're not getting any of the benefit from manufacturers just spending their money, 
that's not going to happen. Chris, why would the team not get any benefit from it? If Mercedes is using Force India to stick new parts on, they're not just going to take the parts away again. Yes, they are. Why, why would they give them the competitive advantage? They are just going to use them. They use their facilities and then take all the benefits. I know you're looking after the chat room spanners, but I did, I did just notice a brilliant comment from N European who's written that Grosjean mentioned that Haas, the fourth team in the championship, was lapped in Italy. This is wrong. Yes, you may think that's wrong, but that's not new. If you look back sort of 20 years ago, 90s, 94, 95, you would regularly get the team fourth or fifth in the Constructors' Championship being lapped by the Williams or the McLaren or the Ferrari out front. It does. It, it has been part of Formula 1 for a long time, so that's not really the argument, unless you're trying to say that basically all the cars should be equal. Well, yes, technically they should be equal, but if they were equal, they'd be Formula E cars, wouldn't they, Chris? Just saying. <laughs> Effectively, that, we just get a stock chassis and they all work on their own engines. Then exactly. it becomes IndyCar. Yes. Which we all know is incredibly exciting. So as, as part and parcel of this discussion, we saw Toto Wolf advocating for three car teams as, as a different way to solve effectively the problem of where to put young drivers, which is part of this discussion. What do we think of this, Spanners? Love it. Yeah, absolutely love it. And I know people are going to cry that, oh, yeah, but Renault and McLaren aren't going to be able to run a third team, a third driver. Oh, well, uh, unlucky. Uh, that doesn't mean we just halt everything. But the idea of having uh, maybe a non-championship scoring third driver with, most importantly, a time limit on how long a driver can occupy that so that it is reserved for rookies. So no more than one season. Or you could even say no more than six months worth of races. Therefore, you have to have a rookie in. And if you don't sign him, he gets, you know, so you've almost got like a second division of drivers within F1. But more importantly, you've got full grids again. 20 cars isn't enough. It's not enough. Yeah, my ideal scenario would be like a 26 car uh, grid. But I have been sort of tinkering the idea. And I think if you let a team, if they want to run a third car, they can. But only two can score constructors points. Say your top two cars, be it whether it was the, the rookie car that ends up scoring the most points, only two of your cars can score constructors points. And that way you bump up the, the, the grid numbers a little bit, but you don't give a huge advantage to the teams running third cars. However, they do still gain a small advantage in the fact that they'll be gathering a lot more data than the cars running at uh, the teams running two cars. Uh, and so they'll get a benefit from that as well. Plus, I'm not sure how much I like the idea of, say, an all Mercedes or an all Ferrari podium. So those are the negative aspects of it. But it's a short term solution. But do we want to be just slapping another short term solution on long term issues again? I really love this debate personally. And uh, Low Stealth has written on the, the chat stream again. Listen, F1 has never been competitive up and down the grid. Why do we argue about this every year? I actually think I've got an answer to that. And it's because we're in 2018. You know, as we have developed as a society, we have a shorter attention span. 20 years ago, we would watch Formula One races and we would see, you know, what we were shown because of one television channel in the one couple of countries or whatever. You know, you'd see one feed. You wouldn't have an app to give you all the data. You wouldn't have your own timing screen that you could look at at home. You wouldn't have multiple camera angles. It's fantastic. 
it is absolutely brilliant now what kind of coverage we get. But we're so overloaded with information. We're so overloaded with data. And we've got such a short attention span in this HD digital culture that we want everything to happen now. We want it. We know we want a good race now. We want to see the magnificent battle now. We don't want to wait for you know three or four races for this spectacular race to happen. We look back at Spa ninety eight and go, well, why isn't every race like that? That's kind of the way we have evolved as a society. And we look at these boring races, inverted commas, and we say, well, why can't it just be more even? It's never been that even. It's probably never going to be that even. One team shows up every year, builds the best car, wins the championship. End of. You know, that's what Formula One is. If the other teams can't build a good enough car to compete with them, they go back to the drawing board, do a better job next year. And if they don't, tough. That is Formula One. What is the point of building your own car and racing it if they're all going to be level? You have to have competition, yes, but you also have to give these engineers, these scientists, these aerodynamicists a platform to go and be creative. Ah, that was a very, very long point. But basically what you were saying was, in olden days, the Lords used to have the vote and all the plebs didn't need one. And it was fine. And we had a harvest every year. We worked half the hours. Um I don't think we should base our expectations of modern Formula One. I lived through the 80s and 90s. There were some terrible races where literally only the first corner was worth watching. And then you just tune in to see if Gerhard Berger's car would fall off or his uh, wing mirror would fly into his air intake. If you look at E.T., a film that I loved as a kid, try going back and watching that now. That is some dirge. That is some real dirge because we have just got different expectations. And yeah, kind of, Jake, if I'm going to sit down for three hours every other Sunday to watch some F1, yeah, please do make an effort to make it entertaining. Yeah, we can sacrifice some of the, oh, the, the purity of the sport. Go away, go away. You can have a sub-series with purity. Look what happened with Test Cricket in 2020. 2020 is a great way to sit down and watch cricket. We don't need Test Cricket to go on forever. F1 doesn't need to be like it was in the 90s. Formula One is the pinnacle of motorsport. It should be the purest form of motorsport where everybody, the best drivers, try and build the best cars and compete on the best racetracks. If you want the entertainment side of things, that's why we have F2 and IndyCar and Formula E and all these other series. You can't suddenly say that F1 needs to be entertaining because it is a sport. I completely agree. Spoken like someone who does not actually have to barely do anything to work for a living. Look, my friend, if F1 makes no money, there is no purity. There is no sport. There is a commercial side to this sport for a reason. It is incredibly expensive. And the glory days of unlimited sponsorship from tobacco companies have gone away forever. And that's why we're having this debate, because you can't just go out and talk to some brand new company and get more money than you could ever spend in a year. This is a problem. And I'll tell you what else. If we're talking about problems, I'm going to bring this up about three-car teams. You know what an extra car is? An extra car is extra data. Do you know what extra data is? Oh, that's even more of a gap between the manufacturers and the midfield. And the whole reason we're having this conversation in the first place is because that gap has gotten too big for most people. And you're going to go back and say, well, what about the old days? The old days is better because all these teams could finish on the podium. Yeah, they did. That's because people's engines blew up literally every other race. So you weren't guaranteed. You did not have the same baked-in reliability of the sport the FIA has handed us. So you have a problem. And you know what else? Now, now that I'm on a rant, you know what else I noticed? 
What happens if I have a third car in my team? Oh, I have to spend more money. What happens if I have a servant team? Oh, I have to spend more money. Is anyone else noticing that the, the, the common thread here is that the teams that are now spending way more money than anyone else will wind up being able to spend, well, um, way more money than anyone else? You're absolutely right. You know, to, you, you made the brilliant point about tobacco sponsorship, and you're right. As uh, well to do and, you know, politically correct and everything, getting rid of tobacco sponsorship is – Killing tobacco sponsorship in Formula One has basically killed the money. There's no more money because, you know, the thing about the tobacco sponsorship was there would be literally $600 million of sponsorship every year from Marlboro. You know, they, they just threw so much at it. Nowadays, it's a beer company. It's a bank. It's an insurance company. It's a computer firm. They just don't have that kind of money to dip into. I think you're absolutely right. It was the right thing to do. But, you know, tobacco sponsorship effectively killed the money in F1. We could just have vape sponsorship, couldn't we? While everybody's temporarily doing that. In 10 years, we're going to be looking. Do you remember when everyone vaped? Oh, yeah. Oh, that was <laughs> oh, we'll miss those guys. Absolutely. We will miss them. All right. I'm going to call it. We're going to move on and talk about drivers. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Because what could be more fun or more exciting than talking about who's going to be driving where? Because frankly, we don't know what's going to happen and nobody has any proof of anything. So we should be able to argue at least until the end of the show with no problems. That was the most inappropriate music for the driver market. I think we needed that other bumper that really smacks you in the face. This is um, this is interesting stuff that is going on um, at the moment. Let's start with uh, Lando Norris confirmed at McLaren in the place of Stoffel Van Dorn for 2019. I got to say, I'm quite up- upset by uh, the lack of Stoffel Van Dorn at McLaren because he, in my opinion, he hasn't really done an awful lot wrong. He has done a, a great job in in the car that he's been given. And when the car's actually been working well, he's been quite close to Fernando, certainly a lot closer than a lot of his other recent teammates. 
Yeah, well, he's done so well that Zach Brown has said, basically, if I was running Tararasso instead of McLaren, I'd sign him right now. So what is that about, Jake? You know, it's quite funny. Chris Stevens says he hasn't exactly done anything wrong. I would counter-argue and drop the wrong at the end of that statement. He hasn't really done anything. And that's really the argument here, because he's looked decidedly average. Now, we know he's not average. We know he's a very talented racing driver. But the thing is... The great drivers will drive around the problems of a car. The difficulty he's actually had is the McLaren have, sh- have given him a short straw. They built a car completely around Fernando Alonso. So Stoffel van Dorn has not really been given the opportunity by McLaren to develop. And that's the difficulty because, you know, this is the Johnny Herbert versus Michael Schumacher at Benetton argument. They built the whole car around Schumacher. Herbert didn't matter. Van Dorn has now got to try and use his connections to find a space on the F1 grid. The only problem is... That's only really Sauber. And that's about it, really. Fonseca in the chat room says to you, Chris, he's qualified behind Alonso every time this. Mm. Right. Behind. But what's the, been the gap given the car that he's been given? Would you really expect uh, someone that with the experience of Van Dorn to just immediately go out and out qualify Fernando Alonso? No, not really. And what Jake said there is that Stoffel has looked average. And the important word there is looked average, because that is what is what McLaren has done to Kevin Magnussen, to Sergio Perez. And now it's done it to Staffel Van Dorn as well, where they've brought in these incredibly talented drivers and made them look like amateurs and then tossed them aside to ruin their Formula One careers. You cannot expect a rookie to come into Formula One and beat Fernando Alonso. Hashtag 44 spanners out. Mike right. That is a one-off when Fernando had 10 years less experience. You can't just base every rookie off Lewis Hamilton now. That's just yeah, not you can. patient. You can't. Yeah, you can. And, and actually, you can with Lando Norris because Lando yeah. Norris has had exactly the same input for about the same length of time in the duration of his career from McLaren, and certainly to the same extent as Lewis Hamilton has, certainly since winning the McLaren Autosport Award in 2016, he has had two years of non-stop whirlwind, complete total access to the McLaren business model in every single way. The backing he's had in the junior formulae, it has been McLaren orientated. And that's why he's battling for the F2 championship. He's not even likely to win the F2 championship the way things are currently going in his battle with George Russell, unless something major happens to George. But the fact he's in is because he fits Zach Brown's mindset. He is absolutely part of the future McLaren business model. Landon Norris deserves his seat. Whether he deserves it more than Van Dorn is debatable, but let's be fair, you can't let him go to Red Bull. There's no way they can let him go. See, this, this is the thing. Landon Norris is a phenomenal young talent. He has done nothing but win. He did three different series in one year and won all three of them. He went out and won F3. People argue he should be winning the F2 championship right now, but things have gone against him. I personally think he could do with another year in F2 before he gets the bump up to F1. But with Alonso retiring and Toro Rosso snapping at Lando Norris's heels, they had to do something immediately. And I, if I were Lando Norris, though, I'd be quite right. You, If you're looking at Van Dorn, Magnussen and Perez, McLaren has not had a good run with young drivers of late. I'd be entering with a bit of caution. All right. Caution might be called for. But I tell you what I think. 
I think personally that that Stoffel's biggest problem isn't his performance. And I think the team will know exactly how fast he is. I think his biggest problem is relative to Norris. He just is not as marketable. And McLaren is now in a position where that matters more than ever, partly because, well, you know, of all the Ron Dennis wars, but mostly because uh, Zach Brown marketing, that's what he does. That's his thing. And that's part, I think you were right, That that's really Lando Norris is part of their business plan going forward. They couldn't afford to lose him. They could afford to lose Van Dorn. And that is the singular unfairness of a sport where there are only 20 seats. Chris. And and what's going to happen to, to Norris if McLaren still can't get their act together in 2019 and 2020? Exactly the same thing that's happened to, to Magnussen, Perez and Van Dorn, where they have been given awful cars. They've looked like amateurs and have just been tossed aside. Norris is entering McLaren in a period where they are still in the doldrums. Oh, no, he's going to end up like Magnussen. What, being a complete F1 legend? Oh, no, what a nightmare. Magnussen got lucky. Magnussen got really lucky that a new, came, a new team came along and needed uh, a driver. Perez also got lucky because McLaren felt awful about dropping him and basically bought him a seat at Force India. You've got to be really, really lucky in these kind of scenarios. And Van Dorn isn't going to get this luck because he's been left out in the cold. Sauber is saying he's not in their 2019 contention plans. I think personally, McLaren shouldn't really have bothered focusing on getting the young hotshot into the seat straight away. And they should have chosen to bump up their money to go after Adrian Newey and get him back in the team or at least somebody comparable to Adrian Newey. James what P. I what, what I don't understand is why, if they, if they wanted to put Norris in the car so badly, why did they sign Sainz, a, a man who has not been utterly spectacular in the Renault has been rather trumped by Nico Hulkenberg. I know it sounds quite similar to Vandon, but they know his worth. They know how good he can be. There was a great quote about how, um, you know, when Vandon just outqualified Jensen Button on his Formula One debut, when he stepped in as the reserve driver, nobody was shocked about it because that's just what Stoffel Vandon does. You don't expect it. He just does it. They know how good he is. So why are they taking a gambit on somebody like Sainz when, the, the, to me, the idea of Van Dorn and Norris in the same team is mouthwatering? It is. Can I, can I change the subject slightly and throw a bit of a mad rumour into the mix? Yes. I've heard somewhere that I know that Lawrence Stroll has bought, you know, what people are starting to nickname as Force Canada now. Um, but I've heard a wild rumour that while Lawrence Stroll has bought the team and Lawrence Stroll has had a seat fitting, there is a wild rumour that he might actually not race Formula One next year. He might find an IndyCar seat instead. Now, that is a very interesting move if that were to happen, because the fact that Lawrence Stroll owns the team does not necessarily mean that Lance Stroll is guaranteed to shoe in for the team. Now, if he were to go to IndyCar, he'd have a better chance of winning. I think the jokes would stop. I think they'd take the outfit a bit more seriously under its new management. So... I don't see why that would necessarily be a problem. I think that could be absolutely universally acceptable all around. Great shout. I 100% agree with Jake. Ow, that, that hurt a little, but it's true. The <laughs> thing is, though, the strolls are must know now. They've seen enough data. They're not stupid people by any means. They're a massively successful family. And Lance Stroll, he can drive a little bit. He's not great compared to other F1 drivers, but he's clearly a proper race car driver. They must know 
Matt, that when he sits in a force India, doesn't matter who he's up against, Ocon or Perez, he's going to look, I fear, and if I'm wrong, that's fine, but I fear he's going to look very daft, very, very daft. Yeah, it, the possibility of him getting thoroughly spanked by his opponent at Force India probably does weigh on their heads more than just a little bit. But that said, IndyCar is an interesting shout because at at the sharp end, it it is pretty competitive there. I mean, you know, you saw Alonso in a single race on an oval, but for anyone who follows the series year-round, it it's very hard to win. There are a lot more drivers. There are a lot more pit stops, and and there's a lot more contact. I mean, you you have to you have to be. I mean, you know, Rossi has done well for himself, but uh, let's look at someone. Let's say, oh, I don't know, Chilton. Maybe how well has he done? How many races has he won? Uh, yeah, exactly. Tell you what, Matt, bully me into watching some IndyCar because I don't I don't really know. So I'm talking from a place of complete ignorance. However, it being more competitive within itself doesn't necessarily mean that the driver standard or the standard required of driving is equal or higher. Because if you go and watch Channel 4, there's really competitive racing in the K-Tooms. And Jake and I uh, commentate on some really competitive championships in karting. That doesn't necessarily mean that those guys could jump in an F1 car or the F1 drivers wouldn't do well in that karting championship. Uh, I think both things can be true. I, I get your point about the overall quality of the drivers, but I think what sets Formula One apart is it is modestly faster on the road than IndyCar and that the complexity of managing the car is higher than that required in IndyCar. And the team itself has a great, much greater influence. In other words, the car you're in matters a lot more relative to the skill of the driver. But because it's the pinnacle of motorsport, they still attract the best of the best of the best, sir. Great. Right. So let's talk about McLaren some more. We do know one person else who is going to McLaren, and that is Pat Fry. And this is interesting because who else have they signed on the engineering side, theoretically, supposedly? Well, James Key from Toro Rosso. So what's going on there, Chris? Tell us, tell us, tell us, please. Well, I think Pat Fry is a bit of a, a stopgap until James Key arrived. They have signed him, uh, but they just don't have a start date yet. So James Key will be at McLaren next year. We just don't know specifically when. So I think Pat Fry's come in to just kind of fill the void a little bit, as it were, until he can indeed uh, start. Jake, does this mean that McLaren really do have money to spend, unlike my previous theorizing that pretty much the plug has been pulled on Zach and he's just desperate to keep things rolling. Is there are there actual I mean I know the pockets behind them are deep, but how patient are the investors at McLaren willing to be that that now we sign Pat Fry, we supposedly have key. How much longer can he keep these these balls in the air before they all come tumbling down? It's a good question. Uh I think a lot of it is actually down to how good the commercial sales are of their road vehicles. You know, we've just had a sudden influx of McLaren road vehicles all of a sudden. We had one in 93, one McLaren road car. Then we had another one about 13 years later. And all of a sudden, it's all been about brand new McLaren, brand new McLaren. Have you seen the new McLaren P1? Have you seen the new McLaren MP4? Have you seen the new McLaren Senna? It, all of a sudden, it seems to be going on their road car vehicles. And that's where the investors seem to be putting an awful lot of business structure in the McLaren brand. Now, as long as the Formula One team is ticking over, I actually think it more depends on how well the McLaren car company is going. If the McLaren car company is still selling an awful lot of cars and they're still raking in the money as a brand, 
I actually think they're going to have quite a lot of patience with them being in Formula One because, you know, everybody is aware of the fact that Mercedes is winning everything. Even Ferrari doesn't win all the time. And their business model is still perfect because they've been in Formula One for so long. I think the McLaren investors are going to see it as a similar sort of argument, whether that's the case or not, and whether that's actually genuinely right. Well, you could argue that one, but I think the McLaren investors are willing to give it as long as it takes. I don't think they'll pull the plug until, you know, the McLarens are qualifying 19th and 20th every single time. Okay, they're dangerously close to that, but they're not actually at that point yet. Okay, so what else do we have going on? If McLaren is going to go with Sainz and Norris, what's going to happen at Toro Rosso? What's going to happen at Sauber? And what's going to happen at Haas? Do we have any anything that's just not a hot mess of a rumor at this point? No, because I'll tell you what, Danny Kvyat could be coming back to Toro Rosso. And, oh my God, if they did that, it would be two years in a row. A Red Bull program reject would end up in that car. It's a mess, the program, but that's an entirely different point. So it could well be Kvyat going back. The idea is that Vandorn goes to Sauber, although they've said thanks, but no thanks. But then, of course, that all depends on what's happening with Charles Leclerc, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I've been told that Charles Leclerc's confirmation of Ferrari is imminent. Again, that's nothing more than speculation or wild rumour, but I'm told it's imminent. Uh, so we'll probably find out, you know, in November. Uh, <laughs> as well as that, I think the Toro Rosso seats, I think I know who they're trying to sign. They'd like Kvyat for continuity, even though they're going back to a reject, but they want to put Tictum in the car. Whether they'll actually be able to or not, I think it's doubtful because I'm not sure even if he wins the F3 Euro series, there will be enough planets to line into the, you know, correct order for him to be given a drive in 2019, 2020 maybe, but I don't think next year is possible. Oh, the Kriat story though is mirroring like nightclub toilet conversations around the country, isn't it? With their arm around Kriat going, no, look, we know what happened last time. It took ages to get over it. They don't care about you. No, they have changed. Don't do it. Don't go back. And it's hilarious as well, because they've said, oh, he's more mature now. You know, he's, he's not as childish as he was the first time. around. No, you're not as childish as you were the first time around. That's my argument. Can I explain the whole um, Leclerc scenario about how they've been to and fro between him and, and Kimmy's? So the idea was Sergio Marchione wanted Leclerc in the car. And his passing did rather complicate uh, the issue because the new CEO is a close personal friend to Kimi Raikkonen and wanted to keep Raikkonen in the car for continuity, really, and then maybe put the car in the car in 2020. Um, although it seems now that the original idea is going to be honoured. And I think even the chairman has stepped in on this a little bit and wants to put Leclerc in the car again. This is all still, you know, unofficial. There's no confirmation of it, but it seems like this is what's going um, to happen. And so that leaves room for Antonio Giovinazzi to come into Sauber, finally. And Toro Rosso even looked at him, but Helmut Marco uh, said, and I quote, he's off elsewhere. So that would suggest he's being lined up at Sauber, which would then in turn promote the idea that Leclerc is going to Ferrari. I was 80% certain I wanted Leclerc to go to Ferrari and I've just come back from 
the World Karting Championship, where he finished second to Max Verstappen five years ago. I'm now 138,000% certain he should be in a Ferrari next year. Leclerc is that good a talent. He is going to floor Vettel if he gets into the Ferrari. Team orders be damned. I think Charles Leclerc will be faster than Vettel. He will beat Vettel. And Sebastian Vettel will go crying to his investors going, why on earth has this happened again? Why am I being outclassed first by Ricardo at Red Bull and now by another young gun in my team, Ferrari? Charles Leclerc is that good a driver. He will trounce him. He will be world champion in a Ferrari before Vettel is. End of. And this is exactly the way that Stoffel Van Doren came into the sport with exactly that kind of hype. So I am waiting to see it done. But before we go to our Singapore predictions, do we have anything to plug? Jake. Well, actually, the week after the Singapore Grand Prix is another opportunity to see the up-and-coming young guns who will be in Formula One one day, including two of the Red Bull juniors uh, in the program that are not yet old enough to compete in Formula One, uh, namely Harry Thompson and Johnny Edgar of Great Britain. They will be competing in the OK World Championship and OK Junior Championship, which is the FIA Karting World Championships at Christianstad in Sweden, where we'll have a lot of guests that are going to be there, including CIK FIA President Felipe Massa, uh, Nico Rosberg, racing team is there so he'll be there and we'll try and get a chat with him at some point if we can uh sebastian montoya that's the son of juan pablo he's racing so juan pablo will be there uh there's a lot of formula one personalities that go to those events so uh yeah it's worth checking out on the live stream actually the week after singapore on cikfia.tv their live stream uh it is the coolest karting event you're ever going to see it is the world championships and formula one drivers of the future will be there oh somebody won that title in 2014 by the way his name lando norris Ooh, chris do you have anything to plug this week uh, just my Twitter at cstevens underscore journo. Uh, I did a really, really cool Formula E feature that I'm super happy with how it's uh, come out about uh, the arrival of the Gen 2 car and the new challenges that it presents, plus the challenges that have gone uh, with the arrival of that new car. So go check that out. That's wonderful, but vaguely sad compared to Jake's. And I have saved, of course, the best for last because Spanners, you and I, we have yes. a friend, and that friend is up to a thing. So why don't you tell us about it? He is my friend, Tony, and he did Dad Hub with us years ago yeah. and will do more dad-related podcasts with us in the future. He is starting a YouTube channel now all by himself. Tony is a fantastic, magnificent bloke. I trained with Tony as young soldiers. He was magnificent, still is magnificent. His men simply called him Thunder Beast. That is a measure of the man he is just a glorious human being but lately his wife sat him down because tony is a veteran and being a veteran comes with its own challenges and over the last 10 years tony has put on a fair bit of weight and his wife has finally sat him down at the 20 stone mark and said look your weight is a problem and she's not being horrible it was a very difficult thing for a wife to turn to her husband and say and if you want to watch tony's first youtube video it's his beautifully honest reaction to a lot of her concerns around his weight and his sort of first steps towards fighting back and getting back on the path. And he's kind of called it day zero because he was still going to have a beer and some chips that day. But the next day, he was definitely going to go for it. So please look at the pinned tweet on my account or follow at Thunderbeast99. And don't forget, he was also the amazing chat room host at our live event and has been on Missed right. Apex before. 
So there is, uh, everyone should go check it out because he is, having met him not only online and spent all the time, but in person, he is an amazing, amazing individual. And I can speak from personal experience. It's very easy for that weight to creep on when you have family responsibilities. It gets a lot harder, any of you out there wearing your judgy pants. So let's all give him a hand and follow his journey. As for me, of course, you can just find me on Twitter at MattPT55. And the wife is, as usual, off writing her vaguely racy and certainly most excellent romances. So, gentlemen, Singapore, what's going to happen? Jake, you first. Give us a prediction. What's going to happen in Singapore? What do you see? Good, bad, indifferent? Give me three things. I see Vettel winning the race. I think he'll bounce back after last year and win the Grand Prix at Decanter. Uh, something will go wrong at Mercedes again and Hamilton will go, what the hell is life worth living anymore? Uh, and I think there's going to be a pileup at turn five on the first lap. I don't think it'll happen in the first corner this time. It'll be that long breaking, long straight into the braking zone and it will take out Sainz, Van Dorn and Grosjean. And that will be the catalyst that fires Romain Grosjean and opens up the driver market all over again. <gasps> I can't believe I was that controversial. Exactly the sort of short-winded and succinct technical analysis we have come to expect from you, Jake. Chris, tell us what we should know going into Singapore. Give me three things, the most important things. If I've never watched the sport before, what is it I want to know when this race comes on? Well, what I love about uh, the Singapore Grand Prix is that it's right next to the Italian Grand Prix, and you could not have two more diametrically opposed races Monza is all about straight line speed. Singapore is all about corners. There's quite low deg in Monza. It's very high deg in Singapore. The humidity as well in Singapore. It's the most physically demanding race of the season. We go from the shortest race of the year to the longest race of the year. So there's a lot to be different. You can't take anything from Monza and just translate it into Singapore because there is just nothing similar uh, about it. And I think uh, I, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't see Mercedes struggle in the same way we've seen them in the past three or four years at this track. Sebastian Vettel needs a win to get this championship challenge back on course. You could have just simplified that by saying one's at day, one's at night. Spanners, what do you have for us? And is there anything in the chat room you wish to relay? No, it's all about me my predictions for the Singapore Grand Prix. First prediction, not just humidity, Chris, rain. That's where water falls from the sky. Chris, that is a non-alcoholic liquid, sometimes used as a mixer. So it hasn't rained uh, in you know nine of the 10 Grand Prix we've had there. Last year was the first wet race. And actually the forecast for Sunday is rain again, two years in a row, having not had a wet race there for for nine years so that could be interesting so in the rain i think that equalizes everything i i think there is a genuine deficiency at the moment with sebastian vettel's ability to handle it in low traction situations well he did all right uh, at, at spa um i think uh, we'll have to you know see how it pans out but remember last year you know Mercedes were the third quickest car that weekend and the rain completely transformed everything. It led to the start crash that wiped out the main contenders and Lewis Hamilton went on to take a momentous victory. So could we see a similar situation again this year? Well, the thing is, you're talking a lot about 
precedence. Have you never listened to a commercial about buying stocks and shares? Past performance doesn't equate to what's it, what's it, what's it. But if we are doing that, this is exactly the point in the season that in recent history, we've seen Ferrari's challenge flag. Not only when they were competing for the championship last season, but also in previous seasons when they weren't so competitive. Now, I think that we are going to start seeing those cracks start to appear, not just in Sebastian Vettel, but also in Ferrari's reliability if we're going on past performance. I think people have massively underestimated Mercedes and their ability to catch up and surpass a team in a competition. Mercedes are used to this kind of scrap up front now. It's it's not a team that has suddenly been surprised about having to compete with people. And Missed Apex Podcast understands that basically all overtime has been signed off. Limitless overtime for contractors and subcontractors of Mercedes. They desperately, desperately want to catch up. Well, that's interesting, Chris. Any response? No, I would agree with a lot of what Spanners has, has said there. Um, to be this. Wait, wait. Do you not understand the fundamental premise of this show? No, I mean, as much as I would love to disagree, I hate disagreeing with you, um, Spanners, but, you know, we can only go off of what we've seen in the past. And I I think it's going to be a really interesting race, um, to be honest. I'd be fascinated to see how the tyre strategy plays out this year, if it remains uh, dry, because we've seen Ferrari and Mercedes to and fro in the last two races on how well they look after their tyres. I think that uh, I agree with you, spanners in the sense that ferrari will uh fade and they will wane a little bit but i do think vettel's got one more win in him before that happens and i think that could be singapore i will say this i think the problem for ferrari is deeper rooted and it goes back to my old dutch soccer coach football for you people who don't know what that is um and he said i would always rather have a player who is lucky than good and it just seems to me that ferrari has spent its luck this season. Lewis and Mercedes have lucked out. Lewis lucked out early on when uh, Valtteri had the mechanical issues and he inherited the points. And they've lucked out with Vettel's own driving, whether it's the pressure or the different team or just the car isn't quite the way he needs it to be. We saw him throw away several, a lot of points with some dubious decisions and driving. And they're behind the eight ball to catch up. And I just don't think they have luck on their side, which is not really a technical analysis. But from a technical point of view, I'm very interested in Mercedes' new method of managing heat in the rear tires. And I think that might bring them much, much closer. So, Spanners, last word to you. And then, because I am not you, we will do comment of the week. So, the last point there kind of goes to the chat room, which says, if Merck can get traction out the corners then lewis hamilton will win it from pole now didn't they say and by they i mean a source that i cannot remember say that lewis hamilton was squaring off the corners in monza in order to specifically drive around that traction problem that's been killing their tires so yeah if if mercedes have found a fix to to the fact that they were chewing up their tires and couldn't get traction out of low speed corners then why not the power isn't that different People think Ferrari have got some rocket ship under them. They haven't. I think at best they've caught up. Okay, so I lied. I, I will respond to that ah. because if we are going to believe uh, Summer's hypothesis about how Ferrari had found that advantage, that advantage is on corner exit more so than any other place. So with the yep. corners there, 
Um, I think probably with the low and medium speed corners, we might see the Ferrari advantage reemerge. And if it does, then that will be uh, perhaps some additional confirmation for his idea. But I think Mercedes being better with their tires brings that down significantly because it seems like they've gotten on top of how to use it, at least at Monza. Still, they are sensitive to temperature and it is hot there. So Spanners, do you have a comment of the week? Yes, and in honor of how you normally do this, I've picked 17 of the longest ones and then failed to conclusively come up with a winner. Okay, uh, New European says, don't forget all the obligatory partying and sponsorship cocktails and champagne, hidden non-grid girls, etc., etc., that the mechanics will have to do extra of on the extra calendar. What a horrible life. EMH212 says, race control, Chris Stevens disqualified for possession of a contrary opinion on a live podcast. One week time penalty and must run around Cota for five laps. Christopher Fonseca, Chris hates modern things like tidy bookshelves and ex- unexposed boiler pipes. <laughs> Low stealth. You could see Spanners check out halfway through Jake's rant. Uh, no, not halfway through. Uh, nearly right at the beginning, if I'm honest. Um, Jake, Jake makes very complete points uh, over and over again. Low stealth also says no one cool vapes. Steve McQueen wouldn't vape. End of. And Rob Standen says, Spanner's northern accent has shades of Dick Van Dyke. What? It was spot on, that. That's ridiculous. (laughs) All right. This week's winner is, let's give it to Rob Standen. Spanner's northern accent has shades of Dick Van Dyke. Comment of the week. Excellent. Jake, where can we find you on the Internet? You can find me at Jake Sanson on Facebook and Twitter and on Instagram at Jake Sanson Official. Chris Stevens, whereabouts will you be on the internet? Same place at C Stevens underscore Jerno as ever. And Spanners, you have multiple accounts because you are a very talented person. Well, if you want to find out whether or not I've secured an interview for Wednesday night with Alex Brundle to come and have a chat with us, then go to at Spanners Ready. But if you want to hear me, Talking about dad stuff as a BBC presenter on BBC Radio Cambridgeshire, then follow Spanners BBC or tell Alexa or your internet thingy of choice that you want to listen to BBC Radio Cambridgeshire on Saturday, September 15th from 12 till 2, because that's when I'll be doing it. As for me, I'm at MattPT55 on the Twitters. And don't forget, wounds cause scars, chicks dig heels, and glory is a fungible concept under certain philosophical precepts. This has been Missed Apex Podcast. That was exactly the way we were supposed to do it, right? That's the most hilarious end to the podcast in the entire history of it every time. <laughs> is that not right? Meaningful to me. The end just... of every uh, e-radio is. The I same. cannot wait for the day you ask me in a blind. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.